Hello and welcome to YHTV's Magical Medical Tour. This is episode 66. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Christina Suzama, and with me is our wonderful medical guide, Dr. Glenn Woolman. Hello, Dr. Woolman. Hello, Christina. How are you? <laughs> Fantabulous. Good. I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> me too. <laughs> Greetings, everyone. Welcome to Magical Medical Tour. I'm Dr. Glenn Wallman. I will be your host along with Christina today as we travel through another quadrant of the healthcare galaxy searching for optimal health. And we're very excited today to have our favorite health and wellness counselor, Tracy Harrison, with us. Uh, and I know that there are always a lot of questions for her. Great questions from our audience, so why don't you tell our audience how to get in touch with us and ask Tracy their great questions. Great. So anytime during this live presentation, you can feel free to ask a question or make a comment just by scrolling down on your screen. You'll see a comment box there. Just type that uh, question or comment in and be sure to click submit. I will receive it on my end and I will share um, your note to our guests. Or if you prefer to ask it personally, you can dial into our conference line at 323-476-3997 and your ID is 607-393-POUND. Now, if then that number went by a little quickly for you, not to worry, it will show up on our screen during the show. Thank you, Glenn. Oh, you're welcome, Christina, and thank you for that. So, as I said, we're very fortunate to have Tracy Harrison with us. She is a health and wellness counselor, and her focus is on teaching people to eat with purpose. And I would recommend to everyone that they look back at episodes uh, 53 and 59 and 64, I believe, where we had some other great discussions with Tracy. And today we're going to have another one. Hi, Tracy. Welcome to the show. Hi, Glenn. Hi, Christina. Thanks. Hi, I, I just realized when you said that it is our fourth one. That's great. That's right. <laughs> we've, we've covered a lot of great things. We covered the GI tract. We covered general nutrition. And uh, the last time we talked about foods going from the fields to the market and from in the market and from the market to home. So today, I think we will have a discussion about specific nutritions. We're actually going to start putting food in our mouth. And I <laughs> finally, finally, what a, what a concept! <laughs> I know it's it's taken us four episodes to get it to our mouth. Well, you know, I mean, that's what that's what food's about, isn't it? You have to prep it for a long time, and it does take a while. But once you get to that other point, finally, it uh, becomes <laughs> worth it. Indeed. So today, what I wanted to do there. I know that there are so many people out there that have specific types of conditions and there are different circumstances for people. And I wanted to go over with you some ideas and thoughts that you might have and suggestions for people that are going through different uh, types of medical conditions and sometimes just circumstantial conditions. So we're going to try and cover a lot of them. And, and as always, I want to say we're going to cover you know, some of the basics, as always, Tracy gives us some great little tidbits and really some beautiful pearls, but it's not always going to be the complete picture. Some of that, if you call in with a question, that will make the picture a little more complete. Or if you need to talk to us later on or to Tracy, that uh, that will make it more complete. The other thing I do want to say, just uh, for the purpose of understanding today, is that 
although we're all similar in the sense we basically have a mouth and an esophagus and a stomach and all the usual things, we are individuals. So when we talk about things today with different conditions, you always have to be aware that you as an individual may have certain things that have to be uh, modified. And we could talk a little bit about that, but that's where I want to go today. How's that sound to you, Tracy? That sounds great. Let's go. Okay, let's go. So nutrition for specific conditions. The, the first thing I want to talk about or I want to get your thoughts on is there are many people out there that have to prepare for surgery and general anesthesia. Now, sometimes the surgery might be a, a bone or, or a, uh, something else, but many times it has to do where you have to go into the abdomen, like an appendicitis or a gallbladder or a colon problem or things like that. So there are many conditions where people go under anesthesia, and I would like to know your thoughts on how someone should prepare both nutritionally and their gastrointestinal tract for a major surgery? That's a great question. Certainly something that most people will face at some point um, in their their lives. And uh, it's interesting. It brings to mind for me a good story of a a client of mine several months back who confessed that right before her uh, gallbladder surgery, she knew she wasn't going to be able to eat all of her favorite junk food afterwards. So she went on this big binge. (laughs) Oh no! <laughs> in the three or four days right before the surgery, um, yeah. and needless to say, that's not what I would recommend. <laughs> All uh, right. I I, uh, I think in general, the most important concept is to remember that um, surgery is uh, a shock to the body. It's a it's a therapeutic um, invasion of the body, and you want to go into that from a position of strength, not from weakness. And in that sense, really focusing on, in general, good self-care, I think, the, the, in particular, the week to 10 days prior to the uh, surgery makes a lot of sense. And for everyone, that means not having a binge then, um, eating good, whole, natural, nutrient-dense foods so that you're really replete nutritionally. Um, certainly, if it's gastrointestinal surgery in particular, Very often, people can't eat very well after surgery. So you want to be fortified, if you will, replete with nutrients before you go in. So plenty of fruits and vegetables, uh, good healthy amounts of protein, um, in particular because the body doesn't store amino acids from proteins. So the couple of days before the surgery, uh, good amounts of protein, whether it's vegetarian, like beans and uh, whole grains and nuts, or um, animal proteins like chicken and fish, eggs. We want to make sure that we're getting plenty of that, a couple of servings a day at a minimum, the three or four days before surgery. Um, but I think it's, it's important to avoid what I call insults to the body. And to your point about anesthesia, also insults to the brain. So avoiding stimulants like caffeine or depressants like alcohol. I think this is really important for people to have a good, reliable experience with anesthesia uh, and to avoid getting the nervous system confused going into surgery, but really trying to hone in on you know good three square meals a day, cruising into to surgery, skipping meals is not a good idea. But uh, really honing in on being nutrient-dense and being very well hydrated. 
surgery in general is dehydrating to the body. The whole experience of being in a um, in a um, 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 antibacterial environment um, where there's a, a lot of heavy air circulation, a lot of cleaners used. You want to be very well hydrated. Well, that sounds great. Uh, I would like to add another part and get your opinion on it. Uh, I've had a number of surgeries in my life, and, and I want to focus a little more on the general anesthesia and the gastrointestinal tract. In my mind, when someone undergoes general anesthesia, there are lots of drugs that are given to a person to take them into a state where they won't have pain and they won't have necessarily memory. And these drugs really work well for that purpose, but they also work on the digestive tract where they stop the motility, the normal peristaltic uh, squeezing movement, which forces food naturally on its path uh, out of the body. And when you go under general anesthesia and you may end up after uh, surgery on a lot of pain medications, the gastrointestinal tract stops moving. So people can end up getting constipated or have an impaction of, of stools that are inside the intestine. So one of the things I always recommend to people is within the last maybe 24 to 48 hours, you start going to a more liquid type of diet. I, I tend to suggest people uh, blend their food, still getting all of the things that you spoke about, uh, but taking it in a blended form so that you don't go into surgery with an entire gut full of food and uh, potential fecal material that may stay there and cause other problems as you go on. Do you have any thoughts on that? I think that's good guidance. And in general, for most surgery, but certainly for gastrointestinal surgery, to your point, there's usually a, a patient protocol around fasting, uh, it, typically at least 12 hours, sometimes 18 prior to surgery in order to try and address some of what you're talking about. Um, but I think to your point, really avoiding anything that's going to potentially um, clog you up in terms of being hard to pass. Um, I, I think in general, it's important to add to your point that um, no one go into surgery being constipated. Uh, we talked in prior uh, shows, I think, about the importance of things like magnesium and adequate fiber in the diet for mo good motility uh, in the colon. But you don't really want to go into surgery constipated in any way because, to your point, the medications and, uh, as you well said, the vast majority of um, prescription painkillers are constipating, it's only going to make a bad situation worse. So I think making sure that you've got good motility is excellent. And I'm all for blended foods as long as they still include good fiber-rich foods. People right. might be hesitant to blend vegetables, cooked vegetables, right? Pretty much any entree can be put in a blender with a little chicken broth and turned into a soup <laughs> mm -hmm. right. and, uh, and, and be perfectly palatable. So in particular for GI surgery, I think that's a great idea. Great idea. All right. Let's, let's move uh, past the pre-op and the operation, and let's talk about post-op and recovery uh, diets for the first day or two. And let's talk about, uh, first, if someone ends up being in the hospital, let's say someone on is, is on a certain diet that they have normally at home, and that's what they live with, then they get to a hospital, and the diet uh, although hospitals try and be somewhat nutritionally current, they're not always at the level that we might be in our own personal use. So what do you suggest for people postoperatively that might be in a hospital 
getting food that they're not used to. I think that's an excellent point, Glenn. And I'm, I'm chuckling because uh, I, I really think, as we discussed before, that ideally hospitals, like schools, should really be role models of nutrition in the community. And so often they're not. I, I, my clients are shocked many times to find out what's actually being served to them on the other side of surgery. And, and I'm a big fan of um, trying to understand ahead of time. Um, often uh, you have a chance to speak to either the on-staff nutritionist or someone who's going to be supporting you uh, with meals afterward in order to find out what your options are going to be like. Uh, a lot of hospitals these days actually have menus where they'll let you know what might be available to you. But I am, I'm a very big fan of enlisting loved ones to support you with some good nutrient-dense foods. And I was actually going to suggest blended foods in particular for the other side of surgery, mm. although I think your idea about preparation is excellent. But in particular, uh, nice, good um, vegetable juices and pureed soups, I think are an excellent way for people to get nutrient-dense food that really doesn't require a lot of digestion. To your point, um, motility becomes less of an issue in that case. Um, just to make sure that people are getting nutrients, whereas um, often their, their food is limited even for the first few days after a surgery because uh, surgeons are often looking for some semblance of bowel recovery before they will allow food. So... Um, it, and it can get into maybe a slightly um, slightly thicker foods, things like hummus or guacamole, I, I think are nice, soft, easy to digest foods. But nutrient-dense things like green juice or pureed vegetable soup. Um, if it's GI surgery, I might be a little hesitant on raw foods. Uh, we're going to get into that, I know. But um, pureed vegetable soups, I think, are wonderful. Um, you can put lentils or some beans in them to get a little bit of extra protein. But just to make it nice and easy to prepare, uh, to consume, you can drink it, you know, no silverware or tableware needed. Um, doesn't require a lot of preparation. It doesn't really matter whether it's cold or hot. But I think that can, um, can help people to get the nutrients they need to heal when so often what they're getting in a hospital environment is not necessarily nutrient-dense, even if it's surgery-appropriate. You know, I, I remember a story once I was having a surgery and before the surgery, uh, the nurse had said to me and the doctor had said to me, you need to start avoiding some salt in your diet. And after I had the surgery, they, uh, I came out of anesthesia and I was back in recovery and back in the room. And before I was leaving the hospital, they wanted to give me a pain pill uh, to take and they knew I was on an empty stomach. So the Nurse gave me, after giving me the pain pill, she gave me a saltine cracker to eat. <laughs> so I, I thought it was kind of funny. So sometimes when, when you brought up the point about talking to the hospital nutritionist, it really is a good idea to do that. I would add one more thing. Uh, in, the, in the few hours post-operative and in the, right after the anesthesia, I would avoid anything with cream in it. Sometimes that will cause a reaction to bring on uh, a side effect of nausea and possibly even vomiting. So even though sometimes it sounds good, you know, you hear, oh, I just had uh, my tonsils out. I should have some ice cream. That would feel really good on my throat. Uh, I would avoid creams for at least the first 12 hours uh, mm -hmm. after anesthesia. Um, Do you have any thoughts? We had a question that came in uh, from Candice. 
Uh, what about when you're sick or unwell? I know a lot of Asian cultures eat simple foods like soups or rice gruel. Does this follow the same principles? Tracy, I'll let you start with that. Uh, I, I think it does. I'm, I'm a very big believer of soups, um, uh, especially in, in some Asian cultures. Uh, miso soup, which yes. is, is really lovely and nutrient dense, kind of in the some of the classic European or Jewish traditions of, you know, chicken broth, you know, that type of thing. Very nourishing. Uh, I think that's excellent. And again, um, little digestive effort needed. The body can absorb the nutrients really well. Uh, and I, I think you raise an excellent point, by the way, Glenn, just on um, dairy foods in general. Uh, for Even for people who don't have allergies or sensitivities, or even, not, even if they're not lactose intolerant, for many people, dairy foods are mucus producing, mm-hmm. which generally speaking is not a good idea in a uh, healing environment overall. So um, I will often recommend, even beyond what you're saying, just getting rid of dairy foods in the couple days build up to, and then maybe even um, ideally a few days after surgery, um, just to try and prevent that from being a complication uh, at a time, especially when people's immune systems are maybe more challenged or maybe overwrought. We don't want any kind of impetus for picking up any type of infection. Um, So that's a great point. Yeah, that is good. I would like to add a little bit to... Uh, Candace's question. Uh, when you talk about foods and illness, especially in the Asian culture, the Asian culture uh, stresses to eat local and eat seasonal. Uh, and I think that's a very important point for all of us, especially when you're sick. But when when you're sick, there being sick is a general term. You could be sick with a flu or you could be sick with a stomach problem. And each one, again, requires maybe specific things. But in all of those cases of being sick, it's probably important to eat less, but eat, as Tracy says, more nutritionally dense. But liquids are probably the best way to go when you're sick. It allows you to still get things in. It keeps you from being dehydrated and a number of other things. So there's many benefits to that. And I hope we answered that question uh, pretty well. If not, uh, come, come back with another one for us. Uh, do, you have, do you have any other questions right now, Christina? Uh, no, not yet. Okay, we're going to keep moving here because I, I want to cover a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's so surprise, good to, surprise. Yes. Uh, yeah, well, uh, you have so much to offer that I, I want to take every bit of the advantage of that. So let's talk about, just for a few minutes, uh, a few of the different possible uh, post-operative conditions that people might have, realizing, of course, that there are many operative conditions that we could talk about. But many people seem to have their gallbladder out. Some people have a problem with their pancreas. Uh, some people may have problems with ulcers or something inflamed in the gastrointestinal tract. So I know those are a lot of areas. But give us some ideas on how we should eat specifically for a problem after you've had your gallbladder out or something in those areas? So I, I think just to, to summarize and, and echo what you um, said earlier, uh, I think any time that the surgery directly involves the GI tract, I, I think liquid, pureed, blended, mashed, anything like that that's going to um, increase our body's ability um, to digest quickly um, is a great idea. 
not a good time. People, many times people have a, a bias against, oh, it's when I should be eating a lot of raw foods because they're nutrient dense. I disagree totally. Um, I think uh, the cooking of foods in general denatures them uh, and makes them easier to digest, makes the enzymes more effective. So I think post-surgery, I'd say at least for the first week, is really when we need to be focused on cooked foods. Um, and, and liquids soften to whatever extent people find palatable is a great idea. Um, now, the gallbladder is interesting. Um, I feel like I could write a, a book entitled, Oh, I Forgot to Tell You I Don't Have a Gallbladder. Um, because it's amazing <laughs> to me how many of my clients have had, have had their gallbladder removed in prior years. Um, and, and that's we could probably do a whole show on why that's becoming increasingly common. Mm. But uh, the gallbladder, as we discussed in the GI tour, is a little sac uh, in the body that holds bile. And uh, bile is produced in the liver, but it's required to emulsify fats. So when people have their gallbladder removed, what they basically have right away is an impaired ability to digest fats. Now, there are plenty of things post-recovery that we need to do to support that because fats, as we know, are essential in the diet. We, we need fats. Uh, in particular, there are certain types of omega-3 and omega-6 fats that we have to have that the body cannot do without. But for a time, the body is going to be very sensitive around being able to digest fats. And so especially for the first few days, I recommend really minimizing fats in food. Um, as, as nutrient dense as they are, then is not a time to use them. You don't want to be using um, um, any fatty cuts of meat. Uh, it's not a good time then for whole eggs. And as, and as nice as soft foods are, like maybe avocado or nut butters, it's not a good time for those because they're so fat dense that they're not going to be well digested, going to tend to give a lot of gas bloating and loose stools. So, um, low fat, I think, is really the, the theme of the message around gallbladder surgery. And then after the first uh, several days of healing, then we can start look at supplementing someone with um, maybe some lipases, uh, special digestive enzymes to digest fat for a period of time, and then also um, bile salts in order to help the body to have more bile acids during meals so that they can longer term eat more fats because that's really necessary for good, healthy cellular function in the body. Excellent. How about, uh, and we're going to talk, you know, there's so many things each time that you say something, <laughs> it just reminds me of a hundred stories, uh, which we always had in emergency medicine. One of our great stories, you mentioned, oh, I forgot to tell you, I don't have a gallbladder. Remember, you know, <laughs> yeah. we had a story where a person came in with uh, all sorts of signs and symptoms that said gallbladder problem. And the doctor working this person up uh, had asked about surgery and said, oh, yeah, I had my gallbladder removed. So it just made no sense to us why she was having all these problems that seemed like the gallbladder. And after a major workup and getting a scan, we noticed that she had a gallbladder. And... <laughs> and <laughs> We said to her, That's great. I know. We said, what well, you told us you had uh, your gallbladder removed. She said, oh, yes, that's right. I forgot to tell you. My doctor told me I was very strange. I actually had two gallbladders. 
So wow, some people, that's a first. Yeah, some people may tell you they've had it removed, but you should ask them if they have another one. <laughs> wow, it's very strange. But that was one of the great parts. That's one of the great parts about medicine and emergency <laughs> medicine. You get these strange so, so. things. We're going to talk about uh, in another episode in the future. Uh, we're going to talk a, a lot more about digestive enzymes. Uh, to be more specific about that. Uh, Let's talk about ulcers for a moment. Any thoughts on ulcers? Yes, they're becoming increasingly common. My goodness. Um, stress, as you know, is a huge factor with ulcers. But um, an ulcer, the vast majority, not all, but the vast majority of ulcers are lesions. They're, um, they're vulnerable places or wounds, if you will, on the inner lining of the stomach where um, the the uh, gastric tissue is actually being exposed to the very acidic liquid um, in the in the stomach, and it's literally being burned. Um, and so, it's very important while people are healing from from ulcers that we do what we can to protect that delicate tissue from things that might be overly acidic, and that includes overly acidic foods but also uh, from foods that promote um, a lot of stomach acid secretion. Most people who are healing from ulcers are taking um, proton pump inhibitors or other antacid medications for a period of time to allow the tissue some protection while it heals. Um, but there's, um, there's a real great list, and there's all sorts of resources for this online. Um, there's actually a couple articles on my website about what to avoid when you want to reduce the acidity of your foods. So that includes avoiding um, pretty much all cooked tomatoes, so salsa, tomato sauce, uh, all citrus foods, um, and that's juices and whole foods, so things like oranges, lemons, limes, um, but also foods that can be very stimulatory, um, so foods containing caffeine, chocolate, um, coffee, tea, also because those foods are very acidic. The pH of coffee and tea is, is really quite low. And also soda. Even if it's a decaffeinated soda, it's still extremely acidic. And we have that little digestive enzyme in our stomachs that we talked about before called pepsin. And pepsin is activated by a low pH. And so pepsin can actually start attacking the protein in our own tissue if we're eating very acidic foods. And this is one of the reasons why they can cause pain for someone who already has an ulcer. Um, so um, let's see, ch uh, chocolate soda, coffee, tea, tomato products, citrus foods, um, and uh, onions. Actually, onions and garlic are a couple of foods, as, as nutritious as they are, will occasionally bother people who have ulcers. So I often recommend avoiding those uh, as well. Um, you want to add to that? Well, I was going to just add one part that has to do with the, the cause of ulcers. Most We used to think that ulcers were strictly caused by stress, uh, but now we have found that it's actually, for the most part, there it's a bacteria, the heliobacter, and there are tests for it. So you would probably, as part of a treatment initially for an ulcer, you might be put on an antibiotic by your doctor to get rid of the bacterial uh, cause of the ulcer, but still that doesn't improve the ulcer and all the things that you're speaking about, you know, from your point of view, then go on to help with that healing process. But that's an important thing that needs to be done. You can't just usually heal an ulcer by changing your diet. A lot of times you do need that uh, antibiotic treatment. 
and you can easily be tested for it. They now have actually a breath test. You don't even have to go in and get blood taken. You oh. breathe into a tube and it it recognizes certain gases that are produced and then they give you some medication and then a little while later you breathe into it again. And if it's positive, then your doctor will probably put you on some medication for that. Wow. But that's, that's all I have on that. I had my first ulcer at eight years old. Oh my you're, goodness, wow. You're a, chi- you're a child protege. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I was just thinking, was well, goodness. did we eat acidic foods? No. <laughs> so, and so, um, so uh, Dr. Wallman raises a great point, right? As, acidic foods don't cause ulcers. They will take a budding ulcer or a bad case of gastritis and make it worse. Mm. But in a good, healthy gut, um, acidic foods will actually help you to digest your food. Uh, there's um, a number of cultures that will have um, some some fermented foods, mm-hmm. um, some cultured foods, uh, maybe even a little raw apple cider vinegar before a meal as a tonic in order to help with digestion, which is great because in a healthy stomach during meal digestion, the pH of the stomach contents is between one and two. It's extremely acidic. It's only when that wound has already started to form in the lining of the intestines, sorry, in the lining of the stomach that we get a problem. And uh, actually, um, Glenn, I'm not sure if you've seen other statistics, but what I have seen is upwards of 90% of gastric ulcers are indeed caused by the H. pylori infection. So very common. Wow. Right. Yeah, that, and it's good that we found that. And, and I will say that there's, there's a lot of trends in medicine right now where we may be finding out that many of the disease states that we have, including heart problems, may be caused by some kind of a little predator, a bacteria or a virus or something like that in our future. You know, right now, someone has a heart attack. We're not treating them with antibiotics. But years ago, when someone had an ulcer, we didn't treat them with antibiotics. So I think there's going to be many discoveries in our future about different causes of some of the diseases that we have that will require some kind of a treatment that's different than what we're doing now. You know, you you did mention the intestines. So uh, unless you have a little more for the uh, stomach ulcer, I would like to talk a little bit about the intestines, either for some type of an inflammatory disease like Crohn's disease or what we're seeing now with people with irritable bowel syndrome. That seems to Mm. be gaining in a lot of popularity. I'm surprised you didn't have that when you were four, Christina. (laughs) I, I no doubt did. (laughs) <laughs> they just didn't know what to call me after a while. That's, that's true. <laughs> <But> <laughs> that's funny. But I, I want to talk about so, some of the intestinal things. And also you might even want to add if you think there's anything, if somebody has part of their intestine removed and they're, uh, they have an ileostomy or a colostomy, which is where the bowel comes out into the abdomen and, and your feces comes into a bag. People have heard of colostomy and ileostomy bags. So would you adjust that for a moment? Sure. Those are all great things. Um, IBS is another one that's becoming rampant. And to your point, actually, we've really started to hone in, actually, even just in the past, I say, 10, 12 years or so, uh, in understanding that the vast majority of what is formally labeled irritable bowel syndrome. Now, there are a lot of people who say, I have an irritable bowel. And that can be for a lot of reasons. But meeting the clinical definition of IBS, 
is very often caused by a bacterial overgrowth, to your point, a bacterial overgrowth that's called SIBO or small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, which is when, um, generally speaking, we have this copious level of bacteria that are present in the large intestines manage to sneak their way back up into the small intestines and feast on the the food sources, the fiber and the sugars available there, and um, overgrow and have surges in growth, which causes the characteristic uh, bloating, cramping, uh, constipation or diarrhea, or for most people, oscillating constipation and diarrhea that are classic IBS. So to your point, yet another uh, bacterial or microbial um, phenomenon in causing disease. But um, because of that, uh, the majority of people who have IBS, I find, benefit from a diet that has uh, low amounts of fermentable fiber. And uh, again, there's all sorts of resources for this on the internet. I find people flourish really well using something something called a FODMAPS diet. Um, That's F-O-D-M-A-P-S. And um, basically, that means people would still be consuming fiber. You really want to have fiber in your diet, but you want to avoid consuming fiber that has lots of uh, um, or is, is capable of being fermented readily by bacteria because ideally, uh, fiber is useful for forming and moving a stool along in our GI tract. But if we have too much fermentable fiber, then we're feeding that bacteria, they flourish and um, continue to overgrow. And one of the, the most important, or the, perhaps the two most important things I find people flourish with avoiding in, um, in IBS is lactose, which is a milk sugar. So I really recommend anyone with IBS avoid all dairy products. Mm-hmm. Um, if, they, if they feel like they've absolutely got to have some, then it's typically the really um, the hard cheeses or the really aged cheeses that don't have any lactose in them anymore because they've already been super fermented, if you will, uh, in the process of being made into cheese. But um, avoiding all lactose, so generally all, um, all dairy products, and then really trying to avoid any excess fructose. So this means, generally speaking, emphasizing more vegetables in their diet and fewer fruits. Um, or in the case of, uh, of choosing fruits, you really uh, want things that are lower in sugar, such as berries, blueberry, uh, raspberry, strawberry, or fruits. So there are a few of them that are particularly high in soluble fiber, like bananas. Bananas are great for people with IBS. Um, so I, I find those are two things that are, are really helpful. And then I have to say in my practice, I find that people who have IBS, generally speaking, really flourish on a gluten-free or at least a wheat-free diet. Mm-hmm. And I think that is not so much about the fibers that are in it, but more about the fact that um, a, a huge portion of the population has some level of an inflammatory response to, uh, to gluten, but especially to wheat because it includes so much gluten. Um, and I think we're just beginning to understand more and more of that in research. Yeah, and I think we talked a little bit about that in our last episode where we talked about what's happening out in the field there. What about uh, thoughts on uh, people with colostomies or ileostomies? Anything for them? 
Um, that's a, that's a great question. Um, I, I think in, in general, there's a, especially in the beginning when there's healing, uh, where a part of the intestine has actually been removed, it takes the body quite some time to recover from that. And I find most people who, um, who wrestle with that have huge amounts of a nervous system reaction in their intestines, a lot of spasming, a lot of discomfort um, that way. Uh, and so again, Calming food, I, I think, is really critical. Most of those folks really need a digestive enzyme because the um, the cells in the intestines are freaked out, if you will. That's a technical term, freaked out, uh, and they're not necessarily secreting. <laughs> they're not necessarily secreting the right amount of triggering hormones that are needed to make sure sufficient digestive enzymes um, are put out into um, into the intestines. So they usually need a digestive enzyme. Really recommend no raw foods whatsoever, all cooked, even fruit. Fruit needs to be cooked. So it's it's denatured. It's easier to digest. Um, I, they often find, again, they do better with liquid foods. But very important to avoid all things that are stimulatory. So no caffeine at all, no chocolate, no soda, no coffee, no tea, no mate. Uh, anything that would be stimulatory, and I put in that box actually any kind of refined sugars, um, because what that what that tissue needs is to be calmed, which is is done with natural healing foods. Uh, fats generally are 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 quite calming, and again, as long as there's a digestive enzyme, they tend to be well digested by those folks. Um, but um, uh, the, for a for a colostomy in particular. Uh, the colon is a place where the body really reabsorbs a lot of water uh, from our food. And so um, I think it's very important that those folks stay well hydrated. Mm-hmm. I will often recommend that not, they not only drink a lot of water, but maybe a good um, uh, no-sugar electrolyte blend that they add to their water. Uh, there's a really great brand I love called Ultima, which doesn't have sugar in it, but it's just a nice mix of... Um, electrolytes and trace minerals to help make sure that um, individuals in those cases are really nutrient replete. Because I see a lot of dehydration just because that function of the colon's been lost. Hmm. I think we've covered a little bit of the GI tract. I'd like to move, unless there's some other questions or thoughts you have, I'd like to move to another area of the body. You know, we we all try, or m- many of us are trying to eat more healthily in terms of fruits and nuts and and greens and things like that. And then suddenly someone comes up with a kidney stone that has calcium oxalate in it, and that you find that the calcium and the oxalate are in all of those things, the fruits, the nuts, the greens, uh, all the things that we thought were going to be healthy for us. And this brings up the part that I want to talk about where it's really individualized. Even if you think you're eating healthy, if you have a specific condition, you may have to look to other areas. So what do you suggest for people that have kidney stones? That is another common uh, ailment. Um, so, so to your point, uh, calc- um, most kidney stones are of the calcium oxalate variety. I, I think it's about um, 80 to 90% of them. And, and it's a place where um, uh, calcium and oxalate have both... Um, crystallized into these little stone-type materials in the kidneys that slowly but surely get bigger and bigger and bigger. 
And there is definitely um, lifestyle and genetic influences for that. But once people actually have them, I think there are a couple of remedies that can work quite well. Uh, first of all, I think it's very important that people uh, try to eliminate things that might be contributing to it. Uh, one of those things, uh, to your point in particular, is high intake of oxalic acid. Now, as you said, those foods can be wonderfully nutrient-dense, but the foods that are highest in oxalic acid uh, are really twofold. One is beans, and as wonderfully nutritious as they are, they're very high in oxalic acid. And then there's a category of greens that are high in oxalic acid, and that includes very specifically chard, like Swiss chard, spinach, uh, beet greens, the tops of the beets plants, parsley, and kale. And it's a family of greens that are particularly high in oxalic acid. And so I recommend avoiding those just to stop contributing to the problem during healing. And trying to increase intake of citric acid. Um, so um, lemons, lemons and limes are wonderful sources for this. So I usually recommend people wrestling with kidney stones try to intake the juice of ideally two lemons a day just literally fresh squeezed lemons, buy a big bag of them, ideally organic. And just, um, you can use a little hand citrus juicer and just add it to water. Um, being well hydrated is really critical for people with kidney stones so that there's flushing that can take place. But we know that um, the citric acid actually helps to break down the stones once they're formed. Now, depending on the size of them, it may or may not be able to get rid of them. Many people need surgery to get rid of them. But when people know they're predisposed to them or they've had them in the past, I recommend the fresh lemon juice um, just as a, a supplement with food, if you will, you know, a nice therapeutic supplement for them on a daily basis. But, but stopping the, the, the high sources of oxalic acid. And another common driver for uh, the formation of kidney stones is actually elevated uric acid. And uh, actually what that does, people are, are often familiar with uric acid in terms of an uh, ailment called gout, which can be a very painful condition in the fingers or toes, that most often in the big toe, <laughs> right. where um, uric acid crystallizes. And it, 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 it crystallizes in joints, and it's very uncomfortable and causes uh, terrible pain. We know that elevated blood sugar increases uric acid. And this is a way in which we find that statistically, people who have elevated blood sugar are much more likely to have gout. So uh, in order to try and reduce that domino pathway, I think being cautious to really reduce all refined or added sugars is really wonderful for eliminating a, a major root cause of kidney stones. Similar to that, um, research shows that soda is a major driver for, um, for kidney stones. In particular, soda that is, um, includes phosphoric acid as an ingredient as opposed mm -hmm. to citric acid uh, as an ingredient. Mm -hmm. um, so those are some of the major dietary things I would suggest in that case. Yeah, I would, I would add that there's a lot of chemistry that happens in the body. So just because you take calcium or you take oxalate doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to have... Um, a problem with kidney stones, but uh, people can also do things with food. For example, I'm thinking that 
if you eat raw spinach versus cooked spinach, it may not have the same effect. So there are lots of variations on that, but I think all of the things that you said are are spot on. Um, I'd like to move on to another topic. Christina, do you have anything that you wanted to uh, ask at this moment? No, I'm still like all right, then we're processing, moving on. so move on. <laughs> all right, we're moving on. <laughs> let's, let's talk about fasting. Now, people, people fast for different reasons. Sometimes it's because you have to fit into your wedding dress. Sometimes it's because <laughs> summer is coming and you've abused yourself the entire other three seasons and now you have to fast. Sometimes people fast. Uh, people are starting to talk about fasting for weight loss in terms of fat burning and different types of fasting diets. What are your thoughts on fasting? As a general a therapeutic tool, just good um, wellness lifestyle. I think there's definitely benefit to intermittent fasting. And what I often recommend to my clients are, are really two things. One is that we know that the body benefits from having at least a good 12 hours a day where we're going without food. And that does a couple of things. That keeps us from being in digestive mode all the time so that the, the GI tract has a chance to really cleanse itself. There are peristaltic cleansing waves that move through the, through the intestines um, and really allow the body to put blood supply and nutrients into other functions like healing and regenerating hormones and neurotransmitters, detoxification. So I'm a, I'm a very big fan of the principle of allowing at least 12 hours between when you finished your last meal of the day when you start your next meal of the day. Uh, now, now, some people benefit from extending that fasting further on in the day. I find more often than not, and this is probably because blood sugar issues are so common in American culture, I find more often than not, um, people need a, a breakfast of some kind in the morning in order to have a good high-energy day. But, but really trying to, for example, stop your day's eating by 7 p.m. in the evening and then starting and having your breakfast again at, at 7 a.m. in the morning, that gives your body uh, a good 12-hour window of time during which it will actually use uh, fat for fuel once it burns through the available supply of sugars or glucose. Mm -hmm. This is a, a really wonderful thing that can take place at night, uh, every night, if people will allow it to happen. So many people like to eat later on into the evening. And, you know, if you have a big bowl of potato chips at 10 o'clock at night, the likelihood of you burning any fat overnight is about zero. But if you if you have a, a nice mindful size meal at, at 6 p.m. and then you're not having food before you sleep, your body is going to run out of sugars at some point in the night and will naturally turn to burning fat for fuel. We're designed to do that. It's it's not an accident. It's not a problem. That's part of how our body makes use of the stored um, energy that we have in the form of body fat. Right. Uh, yeah, there's uh, some people uh, promoting diets now, the warrior diet or fasting for many hours. But you, you brought up uh, an interesting point that I would like to add as another topic right now. <clears throat> how about for the people that just don't want to go that 12 hours and, and like to have something to eat before they go to sleep at night. Are there any things that we can eat near bedtime that are going to promote sleep 
or are going to not harm us? That's a great question. It, it's not the potato chips. <laughs> um, Somehow I guess that. <laughs> so, um, as, as we've discussed in other shows, I think it's important to understand that pretty much anything that you eat sugar-wise that you don't use energetically in the following three to four hours at most is going to be saved as fat. So nighttime is not a time to indulge in ice cream or uh, chips or candy or any sweets. Um, And unfortunately, people like to do that. And I'm going to tell you why that is in just a second. But um, it's not the time of night to do that. For most people, it's not going to help them sleep the whole night through. It may help to put them to sleep. uh, And that's because carbohydrate foods help the body to actually um, absorb tryptophan and make melatonin, or sorry, make serotonin and then make melatonin, which is what puts us to sleep. Um, But if it's too much, if it's a surplus of sugars, my experience is that it's going to be stimulatory and people may fall asleep, but they're going to wake up a few hours later um, and have trouble getting back to sleep. But my kind of magic suggestion for people who find they have to eat something before they go to sleep um, or they just feel like they can't sleep or they can't wind down. The combination of um, a small amount of chicken or turkey combined with either a half an apple or a a tablespoon or two of pistachios. Mm. Um, Pistachios in particular, but it could be some other kind of nut or seed. And the magic in that combination, Glenn, is that um, just a, a, a slice of, of chicken or turkey, just a small amount, you don't even need a whole ounce, but just a little bit, gives us a nice supply of tryptophan. Mm-hmm. Tryptophan is the amino acid in those proteins that's going to help us to make serotonin, which will take us off to lullaby land. But in order to make those neurotransmitters, the body needs vitamin B6. And pistachios are loaded with vitamin B6. Um, Nuts and seeds in general are a great source of B6. There's a little bit in the chicken and turkey as well. Um, And then having something even like just a half of an apple, a few grapes, and and by a few I mean like six, um, is just enough carbohydrate to help that whole biochemical process to happen in earnest. So I think the, the secret to an evening snack is making it small. You really don't need to have more than about 100, 150 calories, but having it be something that will help to put you to sleep rather than something that's stimulatory, especially high in sugar or refined carbohydrates that may help you to put you to sleep, but it's going to wake you up later is not a good choice. I think that will be very helpful to a lot of uh, uh, sofa spuds and... uh... People that do like to eat, and I, and I know based on what I see a lot, there are a lot of people out there that are eating a lot at night before they go to sleep, so at least we can give them some ideas of things that they can do that are a little more healthy for them. Uh, can I make let, one other suggestion, Glenn, I just thought of? Absolutely um, not. <laughs> okay, go ahead. Uh, uh, something I often recommend to people who feel like they just have to have something in their mouth at night they're not actually hungry. It, it's just the whole notion of I'm watching TV. I need to do something with my mouth. Um, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a really big fan of herbal tea, um, whether it's a, a mug of chamomile tea, which can be very relaxing for people who mm-hmm. find they get too wired at night, mm-hmm. or even something like rooibos, which is a, an herbal tea that you can brew pretty strong, 
put a little splash of uh, almond milk uh, in it um, to make something kind of creamy and tasty um, that can give you that kind of nice oral satisfaction that you're experiencing something, but it's not this big deluge of calories. That works for a lot of my clients who are trying to lose weight and just to stop the nighttime eating habit. That's mm. interesting. The uh, rooibos, is that the African honeybush tea? It is. It uh -huh. is. Sometimes it's marketed as African nectar tea or that type of thing. Right. It's um, a wonderful herbal tea. You were going to mention, I think, unless you did and I missed it, uh, the reason why people have to eat at night. Or did you mention that already? Well, uh, I did not. Um, well, I think there's a couple of things. There, there's emotional reasons, first of all, because sure. um, later on in the day is when we often feel more exhausted and more vulnerable, more emotionally vulnerable. And so uh, people like to eat um, uh, high carbohydrate, high refined carbohydrate foods because that helps us to make a lot of dopamine. And dopamine as a neurotransmitter is kind of mm -hmm. focusing Mm -hmm. And and people get, it triggers the reward center of the brain. So they get a little bit of that fix, if you will, um, that can be very calming um, to mm -hmm. some folks. Um, and I think that's one of the drivers physiologically why people might seek it. Uh, and sometimes I find people get caught in the rat race of they've been good all day long for food. <laughs> trying I have heard to that one. <laughs> make healthy choices. And then they crash and burn around 9 p.m. and they just can't handle it anymore. Yeah. I can't the truth imagine. Is. <laughs> I can't imagine that for anyone. How about you, Christina? Oh, I, I, I have so many friends around me who do that same thing. I've been good all day. I just want my piece of dark chocolate. It is eighty-five percent diet. Like, right. Okay. And feel like they want a reward, and so to your point, the the sweetness, the salt. Um, we know scientifically that things like chocolate covered almonds or uh, chips, <laughs> it's that magic combination of fat, salt, and sugar that does not exist in nature, but it gives us huge dopamine hits um, and a little bit of serotonin as well. You get a surge that unfortunately isn't going to last. So it was not going to help you stay asleep, but, but people feel the relaxation of that. And um, it's, it's tough to get people out of that spiral. But again, if you're it's you're going to fall off the wagon, it's actually better for you metabolically to do it in the middle of the day than late at night when it's probably going to keep you awake and really just contribute to your body fat. Mm. Um, in that sense, a calorie is not a calorie. The, the sugars and refined carbohydrates that we eat later in the evening are a lot more likely to be stored as fat than the ones that we eat, say, with lunch. Mm. So uh, time of day does matter. So my last question is, uh, this is for the men, and it's going to be an interesting question. Uh, is there anything nutritionally that we can feed our women that will help them with their premenstrual syndromes or their, <laughs> or their perimenopausal syndromes? Uh, anything that we can do to help our ladies nutritionally? Yes, there is. Um... I so we're we're on the theme here, and I and again we can do a whole show on this. Um, refined carbohydrates are things that women crave during PMS, um, during the window of time, uh, the seven days prior to a menstrual period, is when all hormones are falling off. 
but in particular, progesterone is dropping like a rock. And when progesterone drops more aggressively than estrogen, women get a little bit of what we call estrogen dominant. And that makes them have not just PMS, but miserable PMS involving a lot of bloating, um, um, feelings of vulnerability or irritability, mood swings, weight gain, and carbohydrate cravings. And um, again, that's um, women tend to crave refined carbohydrates in an effort to make more serotonin to calm themselves so that emotionally they feel better. But the problem is if you consume a lot of those refined carbohydrates, it's going to give you a surge of insulin Insulin's a hormone, and it's actually going to make the whole situation worse. So as much as they might crave them, refined carbohydrates are not a good food to consume during PMS. And I really recommend women with bad PMS avoid all dairy foods, uh, mm-hmm. primarily because they're hormone-laden. And research actually is starting to show us that um, intake of dairy foods, perhaps because of the hormones, um, totally, there is a sugars issue with that for some people as well. But um, I find dairy foods in general tend to make PMS worse. So I really recommend folks avoid those. Um, In terms of getting um, some relief uh, from that, there's all sorts of therapeutic supplements that can help. But it's the time of the month when a good low glycemic diet that has plenty of good healthy fat tends to be quite healthy. So instead of binging on chips, it's a time to have things like cucumber slices with avocado, guacamole, um, really uh, nut butters, you know, things that can still feel indulgent, but that aren't carbohydrate dense. Mm -hmm. How about uh, perimenopausal? Perimenopausal. So you mean primarily things like uh, hot flashes? Right. Hot flashes, exactly. And um, uh, maybe mood swings, things like that. Uh, hot flashes and, and to an extent mood swings as well uh, tend to show up in perimenopause often as five years or more even actually prior to menopause uh, because there has started to be fluctuations in women's estrogen levels. Now, contrary to common myth, when people have hot flashes, it does not mean they have a low estrogen. What it means is that in that moment, they're experiencing a precipitous drop-off in estrogen. Their aggregate level could still be quite high, and it's just dropping, and then it's going to drop back up again. And you end up with these big oscillations of estrogen, but not necessarily low total levels. But what I find helps quite a bit is something, um, a good natural phytoestrogen like round flaxseed. This is my favorite menopausal tool. If women will use two to three tablespoons of ground flaxseed each day in their diet, um, it will help to give their body a steady state flow of some good, weak, not strong, but weak phytoestrogens that will fit into those estrogen receptors and keep them from feeling so much of a precipitous fall. Um, Many, many women find that that... um, significantly reduces not only the frequency, but also the intensity of their, um, their hot flashes, especially at night when it can be very disruptive to sleep, which makes everything worse. I mean, everybody's experience of mood swings is worse when we're tired. Um, but um, when estrogen is dropping, one of the things we tend to experience is anxiety. Uh, and this is one place where women tend to really crave chocolate, 
hmm. during uh, menopause. And, and I'm a big believer, as long as the caffeine is not a problem for them and so they don't get jittery, I'm a big fan of using dark chocolate as a tool as long as we can do two things. First of all, it needs to really be dark. So dairy-free dark chocolate, at least 70% cacao. And then really only eating uh, at most two or three of the little squares of it, not a whole bar, <laughs> but, but just two or three little squares that women can put in their mouth, go sit in a comfy chair, close their eyes, and let it melt. No, don't chew it. Let it melt. Let it be a savory self-care experience. You get um, a little bit of magnesium, a little bit of L-theanine, which is a calming amino acid. Um, And women get a little bit of um, uh, an amino acid that's also a a hormone called phenylethylamine, which just calms everything down. (laughs) I think women make a mistake if they have too much or if it's not real dark chocolate and so it has too much sugar in it. But flaxseed and dark chocolate, those are two tools that I find work really well for taking the edge off of uh, perimenopausal, menopausal symptoms. Does that, uh, does think, that include I... flaxseed oil? That's a great question. It does not. Mm. Um, the, um, the lignans um, are attached to fiber. And so you really need the, the, the whole food, and you actually need it to be ground. If you eat whole flaxseed, they're good roughage in the GI tract. But the, the vast, vast majority of humans cannot break down flaxseed that are whole. Mm-hmm. And so they need to be ground in order to get to all of the nutritional goodies on the inside. Mm, thank you. Wow. I think on behalf of all the men out there, this was very helpful, and I <laughs> would like to thank you. Uh, you know, Tracy, we're coming to the end of our show. It's been uh, packed with a lot of <laughs> great information for us. And this is the time when we always ask for a health tip, and we have the benefits since you've been so kind to do uh, a number of shows with us. We've gotten a lot of your health tips, and now we're looking forward to another one. What do you got for us? My health tip for um, for this show is um, to encourage people to explore green tea. You, you really can't open a, a newspaper or a magazine or turn on the television without hearing something being promoted about green tea. But I'm going to talk about a couple of the benefits of it. Um, first of all, green tea is caffeinated, and I find that the average American is drinking too much coffee. And, and there's nothing wrong with coffee. It's not an evil substance. And as long as people aren't particularly caffeine sensitive and they don't have an ulcer or IBS um, or uh, acid reflux, I think coffee, you know, one or two cups a day is fine. But lots of times people struggle with coffee in the afternoon. Because what most people don't know is that the half-life of caffeine is well over 12 hours. So sometimes it's that cup of coffee after lunch or in the afternoon that actually causes people sleep problems later on. And sometimes it's tough for people to say, well, I just won't have anything. Um, And they wrestle with caffeine headaches or maybe uh, um, exhaustion, uh, a real fatigue slump in the afternoon. And green tea can be a great solution for that because it does have caffeine. It's quite a bit less than a cup of coffee. Depending on the tea, it's about a quarter of what you would have in coffee. But as I mentioned earlier, um, L-theanine is an amino acid that is very calming. And green tea has lots of L-theanine in it. And so I find it can be a nice balance for people where they get a little bit of mind-focusing from the caffeine 
but the L-theanine keeps that from being too stimulatory or um, anxiety promoting. And so it's a nice solution. Plus people get the huge array of polyphenols that are present in green tea that are being studied today for everything from reducing arterial inflammation and heart disease to um, helping to uh, reduce cancer markers and, and initial um, animal research. So there's a lot of good things happening in green tea. And I encourage people to try it, um, realizing that sometimes people have to try a variety of brands before they find something they like. And cheap green tea tends to taste like a paper bag. So <laughs> don't try some cheapo brand and say, oh, I hate green tea. My tip for today is that I think the two best brands of green tea on the market are Mighty Leaf and Numi. Nice, high-quality, whole-leaf tea that tastes great, and they don't taste like a paper bag. <laughs> Beautiful. Christina, any thoughts? Thank uh, you for that, by I, the way. Casey. I love that. Um, you know, there are... I'm you drinking know, in green the, tea right now. Good for you. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm still on my latte. I'll move to green tea later. <laughs> at least you're not finishing your glass of wine right now. Huh? Oh, no, that's that's at the end of the night when I shouldn't be taking in the sugar. <laughs> <laughs> With your chips. No, 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 no chips, no chips. Uh, that's one thing I do that's uh, good. Um, so a, a question did come in before we end the show is, what about eating fruit in the evening? What? That's a great question. So, um, like I mentioned, um, I think the, uh, the half of an apple, you know, can be a, a nice, um, thing to create, um, a, just a little bit of a carbohydrate push for the body to do a better job of, of using tryptophan and making serotonin and melatonin. My only caution is that for people who already have blood sugar issues, whether it's insulin resistance or metabolic syndrome, um, or anything like that, I just caution uh, fruit, especially too much of it in the evening. We don't really need more than about a half of a cup of fruit. So if we can limit the portion of it, I think that's fine. Um, I, I'm just cautious about binging on a lot of fruit and having it be too much sugar. A lot of nutrients, it's really wonderful. But too much sugar at night can often keep people awake. But um, in the absence of blood sugar issues, sure, I think fruit can be a nice snack in order to... Um, to help people to uh, just put something in their bellies. And, and again, that does create an environment to help us to eventually make more melatonin to go to sleep. Oh, good. That's a good thing. <laughs> would, would, you add, uh, would you add, when you're having, say, that half an apple, would you ever consider adding maybe some almonds, a few almonds to get a little protein and fat in there to mix it and prevent the glycemic rush at that point or just strictly the uh, apple? I, I, I would, I would, Glenn. And I just to expand on that, I think if, if there are blood sugar issues, I think fruit is best taken in with a few nuts or seeds for that very reason, because it mm -hmm. would blunt the um, the glycemic spike that would happen for that. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mentioned pistachios just because they're so high in vitamin B6, but any kind of nuts or seeds um, is a nice uh, vegetarian alternative to a little bit of chicken or turkey um, to go with that fruit. Um, so that, again, that's a, a nice, uh, pro sleep combination. Hmm. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> so anyways, getting back to the green teas, you know, there are, um, you know, on the shelves, uh, yes, at the grocery stores, I, I love those two brands that you recommended. 
But also, you know, here in LA, and I know they're popping up all over, are these wonderful, wonderful sort of like these sort of tea houses where mm. they have all these uh, varieties, numerous varieties of different kinds of black teas, white teas, green teas. And I really encourage people to go in there. It's like a fine wine, right, Glenn? You're a big mm. tea drinker, Glenn. Absolutely. Uh, there, there are so many tastes exactly like a wine. You know, you, when you really drink and enjoy tea, uh, not mixing it with creams and sugars, just taking the straight teas, and you start getting into the history and the leaves and the chemistry of the teas, it actually has aromas, it changes your palate. Uh, there's so many parts to it that are very similar to wines. And very subtle changes. There's about five different types of teas. You know, you have the greens and the whites and the pu'ers and the black mm-hmm. um, and the oolong. Uh, there are many different types of teas, and it's a fascinating uh, place to go in terms of just hobbies and interests. You can there's all sorts of things you could do with great tea ceremonies to have social interactions and uh, a number of things. I love that. I'd have a tea tasting party. There you go. That's a lot of fun. That's a great idea, uh, Christina, to allow someone to really try a variety of them before they invest in a big box or bag of something that they may not like. Yes, yes. And I I know one of the companies, a wonderful online company, I think they're called the Mandarin Tea House. We'll put it up on the site after the show. Um, They sponsored us one year for our virtual yoga conference, and they have magnificent teas. They, They And you can buy them in the very small pouches so that you can taste them. And try mm. them. And I really recommend people to do that because I wasn't a big tea, green tea drinker until I went to Japan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Then I, I learned to drink good green tea. <laughs> yeah. and, and I think you raise a great point, right? Our, our taste buds change in an accommodation to our food choices over time. So sometimes people find that in the beginning, green tea, they don't love it. They can palate it, but they don't love it. Mm-hmm. But they might find if they keep with it, Three months down the road, they really enjoy it, and their taste buds have um, really moved to accommodate enjoying that little bit more of a bitter flavor. Yes, yes. And sometimes if you do get interested in that, you can go to some of these tea shops where they're very happy to sit down with you and prepare a number of different teas for you to taste before you actually do buy, and that's a, that's mm-hmm. a great experience. I've, I've gone to tea shops around the world and ended up spending spending four and five hours in a shop, you know, because the people there love talking about it and there's beautiful teas. And then you start to really go, whoa, that's a completely different tea than the last one. And you really start becoming discerning with your palate. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, I'm grateful to our very special guest, Tracy Harrison, for sharing her wisdom and expertise again with us. We look forward to uh, a number of more episodes with her. I would also like to thank all of my teachers and all of my healers for allowing me to be on my journey. I'd like to thank Christina and Yoga Hub and Segovia and all of the people involved in this production. And I look forward to uh, meeting again with you next week with Christina and another very special guest as we uh, explore another quadrant of the healthcare galaxy. And until that time, thank you so much, Tracy, and I'm wishing everyone optimal health. Yes, thank you so much, Tracy, for gifting us again. There's always so much fun. It makes me bounce on my bouncy ball. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you both very much. It's great fun. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Dr. Glenn Woolman, again, for gifting us. 
your wonderful questions <laughs> and bringing on uh, these wonderful guests as well. And we would like to thank each and every one of you for joining us in this new platform of education and information. We are always grateful for your continuous support and look forward to hearing your feedback on how we can serve you better. We invite you to join us live on Tuesdays for Magical Medical Tour at 10.30 a.m. Pacific, 1.30 Eastern. Wednesdays for Trinity of Life at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern, followed every other week with Flowing into Awareness with Anatara. You can also connect with Dr. Glenn Woolman by following him on Twitter, at Glenn Woolman, and of course through his own website, glennwoolman.com, where you can learn about his metaphor square breath. We always look forward uh, to your feedback and are grateful when you take a moment out of your day to do so. Please uh, call us at 818-LET'S-TALK. 818-LET'S-TALK. Until next time, namaste. YHTV's Trinity of Life. Come join me, Christina Suzama, as I journey to find the many modalities that support individuals, from children to adults to elders, with topics ranging from health and wellness, meditation, and inspirational stories. I invite you to visit yogahub.tv every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern. That would be so fun. I want to know how the two of you remember all these scientific technical names i mean i'm like i can't write fast enough i have to listen to everything what 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 was that what was that hormone she's talking about (laughs) it's amazing well it helps when you talk about them on a regular basis every day but um i'm a nerd what can i say (laughs) (laughs) it's just like all the acronyms in the tech world you know it's like a hundred acronyms it's crazy wow Awesome. Ah, awesome. That so, was a lot of fun. Oh, Glenn, were you talking? I'm sorry, I had you muted. Glenn <laughs> might have been trying to say something there, but just don't worry about him. No. Is it, were you, was I muted, muted for the whole show? Yeah, we just got you unmuted. <laughs> Excellent. Tracy, that was a whirlwind, but way uh, to go. Oh, my God. Thanks. Yeah, I like, the, uh, I like the buckshot approach. That was fun. The buckshot? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, uh, that's, I think that's we, a southern reference. That's like a shooting in the range. You just right, right. Uh, buckshot is um, it actually is like a you know, would be like a single bullet that has a lot of bit of little pieces in it. So you shoot in a general direction, and you get a whole bunch of different uh, data points. Good for uh, zombies. Yes, we, exactly. Good so, for zombies. so a buckshot would that be like a shotgun? Yeah, usually yeah. from a shotgun, and yeah. you'd be you you don't uh, you kind of annihilate your meat if you go for deer buckshot you, you, there's not much left to eat <laughs> right yeah it's, it's also, a misnomer i can remember my grandfather saying it's called buckshot but don't ever use it when you're shooting a buck <laughs> right. um, we used to have uh, a metaphor in uh medicine describing the different types of doctors and one of the doctors is like a surgeon they say they use a shotgun approach where they just keep blasting until they, you know, something <laughs> gets hit uh, versus, say, an internist or a specialist who uses a laser guided missile, you know, for <laughs> specific things. So, yeah. Oh, my. <laughs> What'd you learn today, Christina? 
Oh, you know, my unorthodox parenting. We we don't eat till late. <laughs> I know. I mean, we're lucky if we're really lucky if we're able to sit down at 8 p.m. for dinner. <laughs> thank you know, I the one good thing though is thank God that we don't eat like what what we were brought up to eat, which is you know, backwards, which breakfast is used to be the light meal, lunch used to be the medium meal, and dinner used to be the big meal. You know, that was the whole upbringing. And then now it say, is reversed. Yeah, we used to, uh, or I talk a lot about uh, in the morning, eat like a, a king or a queen, in the afternoon, eat like a prince or princess, and in the evening, eat like a pauper. <laughs> That's good. Yeah, but, you know, I couldn't it. do it. I couldn't do it as a child. Are you kidding me? I if I ate a lot in the day, you would lose me big time. It didn't matter what it was. You'd lose me big time for the rest of the day. I was, whoa, gone. <laughs> you know, Tracy, when you were talking about the 12 hours and not eating at night, I'm more like Christina. I like to eat, have a, you know, a great meal late at night that lasts for two or three hours. And I might finish my meal at 11 or o'clock at night. But I make up for that because I don't wake up till noon. <laughs> so, I, so, so yeah, I do no, get my you, twelve hours of fasting. I just have to modify my life a little. Except it's for funny. Tuesday. I've um had a client that um uh, was an actor, and you know, based on the schedule of having performances and that type of thing, <laughs> you know, he would he would talk about no, it's fine. You know, essentially, I eat breakfast at ten thirty. I eat lunch at about three thirty, right before I go into my show, and then I right. eat dinner after the show. But he's like, "But I'm going to go to bed at like two in the morning, so yeah. it's really no big deal." My my day has shifted, right? And yeah. and obviously, um, people have all sorts of different schedules. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The only time I can have a really decent sized breakfast is when I have a call time of five a.m. <laughs> and I'm up at three working out before you know and then by the time you get to the set at 5 a.m you're hungry <laughs> you know and hey, that's Segovia, the time i can, I can have a good breakfast 